Hello and welcome to the Easy Point Podcast. Over the last couple months, episodes have been somewhat sporadic. I'm happy to announce that moving forward, we will start releasing weekly episodes every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the show. So I'm here today with Garrett McDonald. How are you doing, man? Doing great. How are you? Good. Feeling a little ashamed over my lack of travel skills as exhibited today. Do you, do you want to give uh, the audience a recap over the last 45 minutes or so? Yeah, sure. So um, we just landed in, at JFK in New York, and, um, and Zach is set up with Global Entry and didn't check a bag and any, all of that, but I still managed to get through security to our connecting flight ahead of him. I got through <laughs> customs first. I managed to grab and recheck my bag. And um, and then I came up right behind him in security, and then I unloaded my stuff faster than he did, and then got out the other side before him. It was it was uh, unexpected for sure because I'm I know I'm with one of the best travel hackers in the industry. So yeah. So to to make some excuses, I was traveling with a rollerway for the first time in a very long time, and pre-check was incorrectly not printed on my on my boarding pass. So. If it wasn't for those two things, I think I would have had the edge, but... Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, Garrett is a bit of a different type of travel hacker. Not so much into the miles and points, although we've we've been talking a little bit recently, and I, and I could sense maybe that coming on a little bit more, but w- why don't you tell me some of your favorite kind of travel hacks, just broadly... Broadly speaking, not limited to the miles and points space. Yeah. Um, when I was younger and a little bit less uh, less uh, cautious, I used to just board the plane last and make sure I was absolutely the last one on, and they shut the door right behind me, and I'd walk on the plane and just sit in whatever seat was in first class and open. And uh, usually they'd come by about halfway through the flight and say, hey, are you supposed to be here? And then I'm like, oh yeah, they upgraded me at the gate. And then that always worked. So, but now I'm a little more cautious about that, and I like I don't do that as much. Maybe the systems are better. I don't know, um, but that worked for me a lot in the good old days. What was your success rate with uh with that method? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Yeah. I I I doubt that everyone who tries this will have an one hundred percent success rate. I doubt that maybe even you would still have a hundred percent success rate, but. Yeah. You know, but great I, that you were able to make it work. It's it's a lot about just you know being able to being able to talk your way through a situation. So it's, it's more social engineering than anything else. So social engineering that might be a term that some people aren't familiar with. How, how would you define that, and what what type of social engineering do you do on a regular basis when you're traveling? Um, social engineering is just a, basically um, a way that you can get, trick people into getting what you want. It's kind of just like a politically correct way to say manipulation. Um, and, conning. Uh, yeah, and conning <laughs> and taking advantage of different social situations. And it could be something as simple as just like asking super nicely and complimenting and flirting with somebody that's checking you in a little bit and asking for uh, an upgrade and like just giving them a big smile or it could be something more complicated um, like that of course is totally legal but it could be something like editing a receipt that says you have a voucher for first class that you got from some travel agent and like you know you could I've never done that but I mean I'm sure people have tried that and that would also fall into the category of social engineering so, yeah, I, I mostly stick with what I know to be moral and legal when, when using different social engineering tactics, no faked documents or anything like that. So, so what, what are, specifically, what are some of the tactics you employ on a, on a regular basis now that you're not 
self-upgrading yourself to first class anymore. I think I like the term self-upgrade. <laughs> I, I I think the the biggest one is probably just uh, it, it doesn't. I've never really tried it in America, but a lot in like Asia, um, I've noticed people really appreciate when you give them candies on like when you're getting onto flights and. Flight attendants have often just, I'm just like, hey, like, how's it going? I'm just traveling here, I'm just doing this, I don't know what I'm doing. And you act kind of like an airhead, and you just, like, offer them some of your candy, and they're like, oh, wow, you're so nice, chat you up. And they're like, you know what, let me check if any seats are available. Um, that's, like, a pretty simple way of, you know, like, social engineering. Do you do that on the plane? No, like, at the gate. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know my dad used to do that a lot. I don't know about how many international flights, but I know on domestic when... Their space was no was no object. Always bring a big thing of candies. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think for him it was less about the the pre gate get the upgrade, but more about the just kind of enjoy it while you're on the plane. And yeah. you know, I think there's something to be said, even if it's not social engineering. But you know, I've traveled with you now for a little bit, and it's uh, just being being nice, even if you're not having a specific goal in mind in terms of manipulating someone, will usually yield dividends in terms of the travel experience. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't need to be nice with the intention to get anything back. You just, just be nice for the sake of being a good person and, and making people's days a little bit better. And then that comes around, you know. So it's not all about hacking as much as it is about the chromatic reactions of the universe, I think. Wow, that might be outside the scope of this of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did just come from an event where that is the scope, so. <laughs> Fair enough. So before we stray too far from Miles and Points, what is your personal experience with Miles and Points kind of before we met? So I used to be pretty loyal to Delta and have the credit card and uh, rack up points and fly first class for free all the time. That was great. And then in the past couple of years, I just kind of stopped. I just realized that I don't really need to be faithful to one airline, and I can save a lot of money by doing that. And I don't have such a huge problem with, like, just upgrading myself if I really want to on, like, a long-haul flight or just sitting in economy. That's fine. And I've just saved way more money than if I were to just fly Delta, for instance, every single time. What made you be loyal in the first place? think somebody just told me like hey if you get this credit card you get all these points and it's just like you see them rack up and then you start getting upgraded and that's really nice and you kind of get hooked probably for good reason but ultimately i realized that it's just like okay instead of taking this like two thousand dollar delta flight i'll take like a like a w- one flight that goes to iceland for like three hundred dollars and then a connecting flight to london for another 80 and that's just like a way better deal and you're there in like maybe like an hour longer so it's it's no problem so what credit cards are you using these days if you're not racking up the miles and points on Delta? I have a Discover card and a Chase card, and just I just end up using the Chase one more just because it has a higher limit, and it's just kind of annoying like going and making a payment and having to do that multiple times a month. So yeah, I'm not really into actually like credit card point systems and all that kind of things at the moment. Cool. Well, with the amount of travel you do, there's probably some simple things that don't require a million cards a year, like some of us, but could <laughs> have you flying in first class for free a little bit more often. Yeah, that'd be nice. That'd be really nice. Yeah. So, Garrett, would you be open to a, a super short little consult on how to upgrade your, your miles and points real quick? For sure. So, approximately, you know, about how much are you spending a month, and is any of that for, like, a designated business that needs to be on a separate card? Yeah, it could all be on a separate card, but the way my accounting works, it can be in personal as well, and I can just expense that to the business. 
and it's on average probably three thousand a month. Three thousand a month. So I think I'm guessing a lot of our audience can relate to that. While I was in college and churning about five to six cards a quarter during my last year, I was definitely spending a little bit less than that. Still able to make it work. So you can still get a ton of cards that way. And the the way that I like to think about getting you know, miles and points is less about the cash back you get on the purchases and more about the bonuses that you get. So when you spend $3,000 a month, it really means you're spending 9000 a quarter. Mm-hmm. Most of the sign-up bonuses are on a 90-day basis or a three-month basis. So you get this new card, you have to spend X amount of money in 90 days to get the bonus. Mm-hmm. So with 9000 you're good to get at least two cards completely organically without having to do any additional spend or manufacture any spend. Mm-hmm. So then it's just a question of, you know, kind of the effort versus reward for you, which is, you know, how much time do I want to spend to get, you know, two credit cards where maybe each card gives me a bonus that's worth, you know, one long haul international business class ticket. Mm-hmm. Or maybe even if you get a great bonus, close to two, depending on if you redeem it correctly. Yeah. So just off the top of your head, how much how do you how do you value your time and how what what amount of credit cards sounds like optimal on a quarterly basis? One, two, um, or does this whole thing already sound a little over I the think top? Like one long haul flight, I think I would be willing to spend an hour on that for sure. Cool, yeah, and there's also there's like an upfront kind of cost where it's like the first quarter or two you do it, it takes a little bit longer mm-hmm. and then, you know, you're applying for credit cards in your sleep and becoming a junkie for the next time you're able to get your next round of cards. I know for me, I'm eight days out where I'm going to be applying for five cards. But yeah, so right now, I think I saw you have the Chase Freedom card, correct? Mm -hmm. So with the Chase Freedom card and Discover It card, you're leaving a lot of money on the table, especially with how much you travel. Uh, You really want to get one of these like 3X cards that also gets you lounge access and the kind of best all-around card for that is the Chase Sapphire Reserve. Uh, Amex Platinum is also great, and both of these have pretty large bonuses. The Chase FI Reserve is no longer 100000 It's only 50000 or 75000 if you can finagle a, a Chase banker in person, or if you're a Chase private client, then they can just offer that to you. Mm-hmm. And these points are worth a lot. So they're, the Chase points are worth at least $1.5 cents because even if you don't redeem them with transfer partners, you mm-hmm. can redeem them on the Chase portal, where for each point you get $1.5 cents worth of travel. Okay. So off the top of the, the bat, that's $750 for getting a single credit card and spending it. Yeah, and there's not that much work to do because once you apply for the card, if it naturally hits your spending habits, mm-hmm. then you just use the card. Yeah. And then after you hit it, you just maybe don't use it. Mm-hmm. I would get one of these Chase Sapphire Reserve cards first because when you're getting Chase cards, they actually have a rule where if you've got more than five credit cards in the last two years, you can't get more of most of their products. So there, there's great other cards, but you can get those later. Where Chase, if you get the other cards first, you're locked out of some of their more lucrative cards. Huh. Interesting. So, yeah, with the Chase Sapphire Reserve, I th- believe that's a $4,000 uh, minimum spend for the first three months. So now you still have 5000 left. Add in another business card that then won't count against that 524 rule that I just outlined. Yeah. You just get so you get a business card, you get a personal card, and again, depending on how you you do your accounting, you're able to then just you could expense business card on a personal account and vice versa. So you get a great business card, and then let's say each of those bonuses come to be worth about you know seven hundred dollars on average. You just made fourteen hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. So 
then the then the skill is redeeming the points to get that long haul ticket. Right. So, you know, I say seven hundred fifty dollars for the reserve, but that's a floor. There are long haul international tickets where you can transfer those fifty thousand chase points to another airline, get the saver award, and then that's the long haul flight. Hmm. But seven hundred fifty dollars on the portal won't come close to a long haul flight in business. Hmm. Right. So there's a whole you know, there's the accumulation, which is pretty easy, and then there's the actual spending. Yeah. And that takes a little bit more of an investment if you want to figure out yourself personally. Mm-hmm. But luckily, you know me, right. so you just ask me once you have the points and make it happen. And that works, I can just kind of transfer the points over to you, and, and uh, that works? No, not to me. So more, it's like I would just advise you on how to use it, okay. where it's like, let's say you have X amount of trips coming up, uh, and you're like, hey, I want to use points for some of these, and then I could just you know, give my recommendations on, okay, which, which is going to have the best value for these points. And then you just check for the availability. And if it's there, then you make it happen. So you transfer the points actually directly to the frequent flyer programs of your own. So Chase, like Amex, City, and Starward Preferred Guest Mm -hmm. are transferable point currencies where unlike a Delta card where you're locked into using Delta miles on Delta airlines or SkyTeam airlines, a chase point can be transferred to a bunch of different airlines and even some hotels. Wow. So what's nice about that is you're then not locked in to specific carriers. So if you're traveling around the world, you know, the way you are, you don't want to be locked into just Delta or Sky Team. You want to be able to potentially redeem on a Cathay Pacific or mm-hmm. on a, that flight we were talking about from London to Perth. Or There's all these other, other flight options where if you just earn Delta miles, you're kind of out of luck. Yeah, yeah definitely. That seems like the option for me. <laughs> okay. Now less less miles and points stuff, and let's get it back to get back to Garrett. So, Garrett, do you want to talk a little bit about what what you do in the crypto space and how maybe it relates to all this travel that you're doing? Yeah. Um, I started a Bitcoin mining company in 2010, and since then I've uh, been really into cryptography and all of it the uh, benefits that it can provide for us as, as humans living in this society and um, the definitely cryptocurrency and the technologies behind it are going to cause massive change in, in the way that we operate as humans. So it's been really interesting to me because of the freedom that it can provide for people um, and just the independence that it can give people to, to control their own money basically is the primary function right now. But tons of different things are going to go on there like self-sovereign identity and being able to manage land without dealing with a corrupt land bureau office in some developing countries, um, et cetera, et cetera. There's tons of use cases that will be really good. Maybe it'll help stop trafficking of illegal goods and people and animals. Um, yeah, so there's tons of benefits that we'll see come out of this. And what I focus on is, uh, is technical architecture for applications and infrastructure that powers everything. And also uh, security of the private keys, which are used to sign and authenticate ownership of the data, uh, whether it's a transaction on the Bitcoin network or um, some data being onloaded into the Ethereum blockchain for some distributed application, um, just basically auditing the security behind the management of those keys. Wow. So bringing it back to the travel space, what are some of the best applications of blockchain technology and and modern cryptographic methods uh, to the archaic travel industry? I think one, so I'm a, I'm a private pilot myself, and one really, really interesting use case 
is uh, managing maintenance records for, for planes. Uh, because right now it's just kind of like a logbook. Um, same with your flight hours that you've logged, and it's very easy to fake that. But using a uh, distributed application with connected to an IoT logger in the plane, uh, you'd be able to have that logger sign a transaction that says that you've actually flown this many hours associated with this identity or a sub-identity sub that's associated with your main one, the sub-identity being your pilot's identity, basically. And, and that would make sure that we can't fake uh, flight logs, which would be really interesting. So just, just to break it down a little bit more, you said IoT. I think this stands for the Internet of Things. What, what, is that, what does that mean exactly? Uh, it basically just means a device that's connected to the Internet in some way. But in specifically blockchain applications, we're talking about a device that has a, uh, a, signi- a signing element to it so it can cryptographically secure data that it either generates or senses. Miles should be tokens that you should be able to control with a cryptographic identity and transfer between people um, without an airline necessarily knowing about it. That would allow to- that miles to become more like a, like a fungible currency. So I think airlines would not want this. Under the status quo right now, they actually prohibit the transfer of miles to people you don't know, the selling or buying of miles. And uh, the IRS actually doesn't view miles and points as like assets or so- something that's taxable. They view it as a reward specific to the merchant, where it's almost like a discount on the initial pur- purchase price. Interesting, because is that why when you redeem miles, the price is never zero dollars? There's always some small like $5 fee or so? Not exactly. The, those fees are separate. Where it's like the miles you're redeeming is for are, are for like the ticket price, and then there's taxes and fees that are like independent of that like ticket price. Though all the factors that go into a ticket are absurdly complicated. But yeah, in the in the United States, uh, the cheapest price award ticket you can get is uh, X amount of miles and five dollars and sixty cents, which is like the federal government's uh, tax. But then there's specific airport taxes depending on which airport you're going to. There's fuel surges surcharges depending on what route you're doing and the price of oil so there's a lot of things that can be added on and what we've seen over the last kind of like decade of you know people seriously looking into the opportunities to use miles and points for international luxurious travel is that airlines are tacking on not taxes because that's by governments but fuel surcharges so actually one of my favorite i don't know not just routes uh, i was going to use this to go from jordan to San Francisco, back to Amman, Jordan, for just a hundred thousand JAL points, uh, JAL miles, which I would get by having a hundred thousand Starwood preferred guest points on Emirates Business Class for just a hundred thousand points, and I w- that would have been with seventy dollars in taxes and fees round trip. But then they added a fuel sur- surcharge that then added, I believe, seven hundred dollars each way. So now that made it kind of prohibitively expensive for me to take the very cheap miles with business class option. Gotcha. So they're, they're finding ways to make it kind of less attractive. Mm, that's too bad. But let, let's, let's take it back to the kind of miles and points as, as tokens. And, you know, what, what you're kind of advocating for is almost a tokenized security, right? It wouldn't really be a security, especially if the IRS and SEC view miles and points as as non-taxable, non-securities, non-assets. I think that's because they're not tradable right, right. now. So if they were transferable, 
among people than than they would become in that asset class. Okay, that's too bad because that would be a really wonderful loophole to create a token that's not taxable. Yeah, and there's even so you know my my co-host for some of the shows, Jason, he is a mileage broker, so his business is kind of the buying and reselling of miles sometimes to other brokers but more often to actual travelers that you know are looking to to fly and when you know they ask him the best price he can give them and you know he has a lot of tools at his disposal and one of his most powerful tools especially for long haul international and premium cabin flights is using the miles and points so there there is a whole industry right now of people transferring these miles and points but the you know, at, for so, so so if the airlines don't allow the transfer of points, how does that industry operate? So there's a lot of it is kind of a secret a secret sauce of, of people that you know do it, and they wouldn't want to reveal all their methods. But in short, uh, you know, there's businesses or you know high, big spenders that don't actually want to use their points, or would just prefer kind of getting you know a cash valuation for those points mm-hmm. where they maybe can get one cent for their points by redeeming on the statement credit mm-hmm. but some of these brokers might offer 1.2 1.3 1.4 cents for those points so that's kind of just an easy option w- with seemingly very low risk yeah. the the airlines and the banks do say if they catch you doing this they could suspend the rewards and right. but there's there's ways to do it where it's basically impossible to detect so then this mileage broker will either have control of the account briefly or the person that controls the account will personally take care of sending the miles and points to either the next broker or to directly to the frequent flyer account of a travel client. So that's that's kind of the the process for how it works. And then the broker either sells it at uh, a price per point or a price per ticket. And generally, when you're selling it as a ticket, you're going to make more money than selling it as a broker, where then there's just a spread between what you buy it and what you sell it for, versus when you're selling a ticket, you can price it against the retail price right. as opposed to against, you know, basically this kind of like asset class that most people don't really know about. Right. Most people know about miles and points, but they don't know about the kind of like, you know, I don't want to say gray market because it's not it's not really a gray area. It's against the terms of service of the banks and the airlines, but there's nothing illegal about it, and this has been confirmed by the IRS and by the courts. Yeah. So, But, yeah, there's this kind of secondary market that operates in despite of what the you know bigger institutions want, right. not a new trend in history. I mean, the institutions have never been the rightful lawmakers. Um, and sure, like throughout history, they've lobbied for laws that enforce their terms and conditions that they want to impose on people and users, but it's never their place to to make laws. So yeah, I totally agree. There's nothing morally or legally wrong with, with that, which is, which is cool. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with you on that point. <laughs> so in this interview, we've touched on things that I think some might see morally questionable like self upgrades to first class as well as you know the transferring of miles and points i i feel pretty firmly that the latter is a-okay if not a good service to you know disrupt the the airlines and the and the banks but what are some things you feel strongly are not morally questionable and you're proud of doing despite what the rest of society might think 
think in general, the idea of disrupting businesses that employ potentially tens of thousands of people um, could be seen as morally questionable because these people have all indeed worked um, potentially very hard to get these jobs and to secure a livelihood for their families. So is it morally questionable to to um, disrupt institutions that provide for all of these people and citizens and families and give them uh, the ability to live a healthy, sustainable life? And this is a huge fundamental question that a lot of people are asking as we're building technologies that make a lot of old corporations completely obsolete. And I think the truth is that um, a lot of people might not be so fast to adapt to a new world where you can do whatever you want instead of just going and doing a job for somebody else all the time. Um, but this is definitely the shift that we're seeing. And yeah, it's just, it's really hard. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know how to expand on that really. Because I guess I could say like, we're, in, in disrupting these businesses, we're freeing people from the shackles of corporate slavery and allowing them to prosper in whatever they, way they want, whether it's starting your own business or becoming, um, becoming an artist that can be seen by people all over the world now because of the internet and the ability to put digital art on a blockchain to prove that you created it so then you can actually be fairly compensated for it. This kind of stuff is really, really new and hasn't been seen before and allows tons of opportunity for people all over the world that just wasn't there a few years ago. Well, Garrett, thank you so much for your time. I think we'll uh, close this out now a little bit early, get to the Sky Deck. We're here broadcasting from the Delta Sky Lounge, uh, Terminal 4 JFK, uh, one of my favorite terminals and favorite uh, airport lounges that I've, that I've ever been to. So uh, we're going to enjoy it. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Today's show is made possible by EasyPoint. Personalized miles and points consulting for you and your business all at easypoint.me.